one of my favorite things to do, more so when I was a trucker, which I was in, in, the, in my, what feels like a, you know, a, a long time ago now, used to drive a truck all day long, but one of my favorite things in the world was stereo twinning. Has anybody ever heard of this thing, stereo twinning? It's a wonderful thing. It's especially brilliant when you're very bored and you're driving a truck all day and you've got to the point of boredom where you're happy to take Radio 4 or Radio 5 or Woman's Hour or anything like that. It's when you drive along in your van and the universe collides in such a way that the car that pulls up next to you has got the same tunes on as you. It's a joy when you've been driving around all day and you see somebody pull up, they pull up along next to you quite slowly and you look to your left or your right and you just see them swaying and you know, and you're like, that's the song that I've got on. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's an incredible thing. Well, I had that, if you can imagine something even better than that, it's triple twinning. And you've got to be on the motorway for that, and normally the M25. I used to spend a lot of time on the M25, some terribly long queues. One day I'm in the queue, though, and who's on but Sonny and Cher, I've got you, babe. Gentleman to my left with, I can remember him, actually, hairy arms, overly pierced, very pierced, you might say. Guy to my right in a chute and a BMW. Different kinds of guys, and then me in the middle, maybe somewhere between the two guys. But the song came on, and I was singing my heart. I looked to my left and my hairy friend, and he was going just the same as me. I got you. We're in this moment to my right, BMW guy, just the same. The three of us circling London, singing our hearts out to I Got You, Babe. It was beautiful. That crazy little story, which popped into my head last week, reminded me that we've all got, all of us, and the more I've thought about it, the more it's rung true, we've all got love songs. We've all got songs that we hang on to. Now, check your playlist if you don't believe me. Look at the most streamed songs or the charts, as we used to call them in the 90s. They don't have charts anymore. And you look on there, and they're love songs, loads of love songs. And they're not just idly on there. What we do with love songs, even the most robust and fierce of us all, we take these love songs, even people as robust as me, has love songs in their life, and we own them, and we cherish them. And you can... They, they, they become our wisdom. They become our relationship guide. Some of the lyrics of them we aspire to. Some of the songs we will look back and we will keep. And they will keep us. And they will be a form of wisdom for us and a form of hope for us. I don't know where you keep them now. You might not keep them in CDs. But we hang on to them. Over time, we'll gain a library of all different kinds of love songs that we turn to. All of us have this in our vocabulary. I was at a, a wedding a couple of years ago now, and it was a lovely wedding, lovely sweet couple, but the vicar stood up at the start and said, this couple love Disney. They love Disney songs, so all of the songs are going to be Disney songs. And at first, the playful, positive side of me thought, this is lovely. This is real. I'm really, this is great. What a lovely wedding. And the vicar said, it's going to be a lovely wedding. We're going to have all Disney songs. It took me till halfway through song number two, till the cynical, less open-minded version of me probably nudged Jude and said, they're going to need more than a Disney song to get them through what is marriage. The Song of Songs has been, I think it's, it's been beautiful so far. It's utopic. It's almost picture perfect, but it might have been hard for you to relate to. 
It's hard to relate to at times. Hard to relate to in your love life or even in your faith life. And you might be thinking, is, because I think sometimes this is how we can perceive Christianity, and that's, this is maybe even sometimes how we can present Christianity. Is this the only song that God gives us? Is, is it just an idyllic, everything's going to be fine, Disney-esque love song? And if that's not our story, then it's got nothing to do with us, and it's got nothing for us. Let's have a look at this brilliant song, another fantastic song. There's two things that I want to share with you as we go through. This is, this is a real love song. It's a real love song that we need. And there's something that we've got to realize that we've got. So first of all, this is a real love song that we need. Now just cast your mind back, if you can, to the utopia, the wonderful garden that was before us last week and how much fun there was to be had and how much they were getting along and how loved up they were. It's amazing, cast your eye to the text, I don't know if the text is on, it's amazing how thick, how thick, it's amazing how quick things can change in relationships, isn't it? This is after the honeymoon, this is the wet Wednesday afternoon when you're on a sugar low and you're tired. This is the ordinary nature of life. Verse 2 and 3, I slept but my heart was awake. Listen. See if you can puzzle out what's going on as we go through this uh, text. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I saw, must I saw them again? It's been, it's been so good to study this. It's like I'm a bit I'm nervous again about bringing you this text, but it's just so good to get under, underneath a text like this. I think, this is how I think it's going. She's expect, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know their marital circumstances. It feels a bit weird that he's, after they've gotten married, he's coming around knocking at the door, but what's going on here? She's expecting a visit. I'm sure of that. I'm asleep, but my heart's awake. Can you imagine that? She's waiting for him. But she's expecting an earlier visit. I think, I think you can say that, and you can see that by her reply. And she's gone from anticipation to annoyance and frusta frustration. Is that a familiar storyline for any of you? And he, and this is, I love this, this bit, he gives it the chat. Do you see his chat? Do you see the way he's, he's coming towards her? Open up. My darling, darling, my dove, my cherub, my coochie-coo. He's given it all of, all of those words. Are you familiar with any of those words? Yes, my darling, my lovely one, my perfect one. Now, let's, maybe we should cut him some slack here, if, if he is late, as I'm imagining. Maybe, because she's going to give him the cold shoulder in a second. Maybe, maybe we should give blokes the benefit of the doubt. Maybe we should give this bloke the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he really, really loves her, and he's got genuine true love for her, and something's genuinely come up. It's not just that he's forgotten about her or he's taken her for granted. He's really got something that's come up for him. Either way, he gives it the chat, but she, wonderfully, and there's some other ways to express this, some more contemporary ways to express this, but the least you would say is she's not having it. She's not interested. I've put my robe on. 
must I put it back on again? Even though she's, it's like I'm asleep. I'm in bed and I'm asleep. Or a contemporary expression of that might be, I've got a headache and I need to say no more about it than that. That's what she's, she's giving him the shove off. That's what's happening. Now the next bit, what you've got to remember here is, it's awesome, it's poetry. So it's somewhere between reality and what they want you to get to feel. In fact, it's probably more about what they want you to get to feel. It's more about painting pictures as much as it is telling you what's happened. So verse 4 and 5, My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers flowing with myrrh. It blurs between a regular knock on the door late in the night, somebody just calling around at a house to something a lot more sensual or sexual. Don't need to say much more about it other than she changes her mind. She realizes she's interested, so to speak. But, verse 6 and 7, the complexities of life, the ebbs and flows of relationship, what happens? I opened for my beloved, but after being so enthusiastic and so gushing with his prayers, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. Then it gets more frightening and more scary. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me. They took away my cloak. He's nowhere to be found. And she, and it gets, it reads like it gets increasingly more desperate for her. She's in a panic and she goes out and rushes to find him. And then we hear about the watchman of the night. And I remember as I read this, part of me is thinking, did this really happen? So is she looking for him and the watchman who would watch over the city walls find her and take advantage of her? Is that what happened? Perhaps that's what's happened. Perhaps it's reflecting something like that. But I think it's more like she's getting beaten up figuratively. She's more and more panicked and she's had an awful experience and she's incredibly worried. And you're supposed to capture that feeling of worry. And you go from chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 3, from having a couple that are utopically close together in the garden of love, interconnected, on a level, so close, to having a couple that almost overnight, it seems, there is distance between them. More and more distance. He gets, she's looking for him, she can't find him anywhere, and he's gone, he's not available anymore. I think it's amazing, just almost on a practical level, how easily distance can work its way into our relationships, our friendships, our boyfriend and girlfriend stuff, our colleagues, or our marriages. It's incredible how easy. Do you see how easy it is in this story that it's happened? It's the ebb and flow of ordinary life. Just a tiny misunderstanding different expectations, something like that, and all of a sudden, you've gone from a couple who's incredibly close to a couple now who are just totally disconnected. It's amazing, isn't it? How that can happen. How often 
that happens, how easily that can happen to us in our relationships. And where does it leave her? It's a really powerful expression in verse 8. She is faint with love. She's like almost, it feels to me, she's like broken by what it could be, what it should be, this relationship, and what, what, what it might end up being, what she might end up losing. I think so many people today have such high hopes for what love can be, for what relational love can be, and there's that sense in which we almost daren't hope in it. It leaves us faint. We want it so badly, that perfect love, somebody to put their arms around us, somebody to be there for us forever. And there's that feeling that we can get of just being faint. It just feels like a weight. I want it so bad. I want to be loved so bad that we're faint with love. What you've got to remember about this couple, this story, is this couple is the love-struck couple that I think God is breathing out to us through the power of his word. He's talking about him and his relationship with the church. That's what this couple is. It's the couple that we saw last week and this amazing utopic experience that's in front of us and in front of the Christian. And yet, look how real the story is. This is the first thing I think that we see. God's, God's song to us this song, the love song, the love story, it's not a Disney-esque one. It's not one that might just dissipate if we look into it too hard. It's a real love song. It would be amazing, wouldn't it, if, if the gushy, and I'm not dissing Disney, I love a bit of Disney. But what I'm trying to get at is the, just the soft, romantic song that doesn't quite capture everything. It would be lovely if the Disney song did. But the reality is, I think, we need real love songs. We need a real love song to get us through. Disney is not going to cut it. Let me read out to you some of the songs uh, that keep us, I think, and that keep our culture. Some of the real love songs. And that I, I set off looking for them, thinking, oh, I'll find a few. And I ended up realizing that most of the love songs out there have this ordinary realism to them. So probably the first place to go is Adele isn't it? I hate to turn up out of the blue uninvited, but I couldn't stay away. I couldn't fight it. I'd hoped you'd see my face. Bit of bitterness there from Adele. And you'd be reminded, for me, it isn't over. The complexities of a relationship. Never mind. I'll find someone like you. I wish nothing but the best for you. I don't know if she means that when she says that. But don't forget me. I beg I remember you said, sometimes it hurts in love, and some, sometimes it lasts in love, rather, and sometimes it hurts instead. Because we, get, we have to have a real song like that because we get painfully attached in relationships. We get hooked. We get interconnected with other people as we go through our lives. And we need a song that's real about that, that's honest about that, and can help us cope with that. Because I'm a child of the 90s, Cheryl Crow, all of her love songs, lots of her love songs, there's some gushy stuff, but some of her love songs are so real. Here's another one. I feel like hell tonight. Tears of rage, I cannot lie. 
And I guess she's talking about the person that is her partner. I'd be the last to help you understand, are you strong enough to be my man? When I've shown you that I just don't care, when I'm throwing punches in the air, when I'm broken down and I can't stand, will you be man enough to be my man? These words help us because we know that we can be completely in love with somebody and yet we can be completely unreasonable at the same time. We can be horrible and awful and even awful to the person that we love and yet love can still be real. And we need a real song about that. And then lastly, and I'm thrilled to fit an Arctic monkey's quote into a sermon. Here's another love song, slightly alternative. Now then, Mardi Bum, I've seen your frown and it's like looking down the barrel of a gun. Beautiful lyrics, aren't they? And it goes off. And out come all these words. Oh, there's a very pleasant side to you, a side I much prefer. It's one that laughs and jokes around. Remembers cuddles in the kitchen to get things off the ground. It was up and away, but it's right hard to remember that on a day like today when you're so argumentative and you've got the face on. But the refrain carries on through the song. Oh, you say I don't care, but you know I do. I really do. Because real love needs us to be able to laugh at ourselves. It needs us to find a warm way to be in a relationship with each other. We've got to be able to look back at the honesty of who we are and cope with it. We need a real song about that. This song that God has given us, in fact, the whole of the Bible, if we can look at it as a love song, covers all of this ground. It knows... And it speaks into the fact, and we can see it in this little love story as it's playing out, it speaks into the fact that we get completely messed up in love. That we even get toxic in love. That we end up at distance from our loved ones. That we end up thinking, man, I'm not sure that I'm ever going to get this love stuff right. In fact, I'm not sure I even know what it is. God's love song in Song of Songs 5 says, he knows that we get beaten up with it. He knows that we get faint and fed up with it. There's so much that we could say about this love song. But it would be enough to say, if you're someone who is ruled out faith, or is really struggling along in their faith, because their own love life isn't perfect, that when you look at it in the cold light of day, you're like, man, I wouldn't want anyone to know about this. I can barely cope with this. That this song, first I put in my notes, God's song includes you. But then I changed my notes to say, this song is for you. This is the love song that God writes. And it's a song that speaks into our ordinary lives and our ordinary struggles with love. And it includes us, us who can't see a way through our difficult relationship, who've lost hope with our difficult relationship, who look at maybe what Christians are presented as and thinks there's no way I could ever join that club, the club that occasionally we present. Maybe even the story that religious people make up and God says that's not the story. My story is a love story, but it is a real love story. And it caters for and it's for you. And beautifully, in God's biggest story of the Bible, in the New Testament, Jesus amplifies all this. 
The people that are at a distance from God, who can't even hope to find relationship with him, he goes to where they are. The people that are broken down and empty, Jesus goes and sits beside them. The people that are aching for real love, Jesus journeys with them, doesn't condemn them, doesn't beat up on them, doesn't tell them they can never find love. All of his life, we see him go to where those people are and share that story with them. First thing that we see is it's a real love story. The last thing that we see, the last lesson for us, is to realize what's there. What do I mean? The last bit of the section is framed by two questions. Two questions that the friends give out. And now I can't work out if these are good friends or if they've been a bit cheeky. I read it first and I thought, oh, these are nice friends. And they're trying to help him out. And then I read it again and I thought, maybe actually they're just poking fun with their questions. And they're not interested. 5-9. How is your beloved better than others? Most beautiful of women. How is this? What's so good about him? That's the question you'd ask, isn't it? What's so good about this guy? Second one is in 6-1. Where has he gone? Where has your beloved gone? That we may look for him and find him with you. I can't work out whether they're poking fun or whether they really want to help. Either way, the consequence is she ends up seeing the best parts of him. Whether, whether they've done it through ill gain or whether it's through good gain, she ends up looking at the best parts of him. It's so easy, I think, for us to spend lots of time dwelling on the negative aspects of those that we're closest to. Easy in a relationship with a friend for them to do something that annoys you or there's a character trait that annoys you and for that to become the thing that you dwell on. And very quickly it can cascade into you really disliking this person that is one of your friends. It can happen in marriages as well. You end up dwelling on the negative stuff. Easy to happen. I do it. You probably do it as well. Equally, and the Bible would shove us down this road, equally easy and brilliant if we start noticing the good stuff in our friends, colleagues, partners, if we focus on the good things, it can cascade the same direction. We can look at them and wonder at them. It can flip easily either way. She's caused in this moment to dwell on, the, on her husband. Here's what she sees. It's in verses, I won't read them all out, in verses 10 through to 16. Maybe just glance up at them for the sake of time. I'll give you... I'll give you the highlights out of this package. It's probably important to say, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that as he looked her up and down, we were a bit anxious. I was a bit like, is, this, is there equality in this relationship? What should we understand about this relationship? And I said, there's going to be a time when it's not just him that looks at her, but she looks at him. Here's the highlights. He's tall, dark, and handsome. And she gushes at that. He's... Attractive, at least he's attractive in her eyes. He's got what sound like golden guns. Guns are the 
muscles on your arms. It sounds like that's what she's talking about if you see that in the text. In fact, he's top to toe golden. His feet are golden and his head is golden. I think we could understand this pointing to the idea of there's something kingly about him. Now, maybe we don't always associate that, associate that positively, but in biblical times, certainly amongst God's people, they were looking for good kings. You wanted to believe in your king. You wanted to see the best in your king. You wanted him to be God's man. She's looking at him and she's saying, this is God's man. He's kingly. Everything, everything about him, actually, he's kingly. And then she wraps it up as she did about him by saying, as he did about her by saying, she's altogether lovely. In fact, she takes it up a notch, something that would be even more beautiful than that. She says at the end, he's my friend. He's not just gorgeous. It's not just rock hard. It's not even just kingly. He's my friend. This would have been really powerful when this text was written. To say that of your man. He's not just my superior. He's not just my husband. He's my friend. What is it pointing us to? What do you think the best way to keep your faith in 2023 would be? What would, your, what would you think the best way for somebody to find faith in 2023 would be? When Paul, no, not Paul, not necessarily Paul, in the letter to the Hebrews, as, as the author looked out on this, these Jewish people who were struggling to stay with Jesus, he said to them, the thing to do for you don't go and research it necessarily. You can do that if you want. Don't look for the ontological arguments for God, etc., etc. He says, look at Jesus. Same way that she looks at her man. Just take a second and stare at him. Don't know when the last time you decided you'd try and do that was. He says, that's the way to persuade somebody that God is real, that Jesus cares, that God loves. Just look at him. And when you look at him, when you just look at him, when you just stop to look at him, you see somebody who is perfect, somebody who is good, somebody who is loaded with compassion, somebody who makes you think, man, there's something going on here that's different. Something that maybe even makes you think God is speaking. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Then it's got a really odd ending. The last little bit had me scratching my head for a little while. 6 verse 1 and 2. Where's your beloved gone? Most beautiful of women, which way did your beloved turn that we might look for him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens, to gather lilies. There's been this, what sounds like a panicked, frantic search for him. Crazy, search party's out. Friends, can you come and help me look for him? We've got to find him, we've got to find him somewhere. Everyone's rooting round to try and find him. And then she just goes, oh, hang on. He's in, he's in his garden, browsing with the lilies. What's, what's happened? Did she just not check the garden? What's happened? Why has why he suddenly turned up? What's happened, I think, is poetry. She's been speaking 
poetically, at least in part, all of this time. She's stopped and she's dwelt on her husband. She's stopped and she's remembered who is like, what his character is, what they've got as a relationship, and the distance that was there between them has dissipated. I think you're supposed to see that he'd never really gone anywhere all along. It was just that she'd stopped seeing how wonderful he was and how wonderful they were together. This can happen in life, can't it? We can stop looking at our loved ones. We can stop seeing them as good. We can stop seeing any good in them. And it can, it can happen in our faith lives as well. We can stop looking at God. We can stop looking at the person that we might say has saved us, that is our whole life. We can just stop looking at him. And the distance can get in there really, really quickly. And this poem beautifully tells us that he hasn't gone anywhere. It's just that we've not been able to see him. I think one of the pictures that the Bible gives us or suggests is that all humanity has this same sort of idea. It's not that we've never seen God or never known him. It's just that humanity from creation has forgotten that it once walked with him. It's just stopped looking at him, stopped looking for him. I think part of us knows this, we sense this. God, I would say, it's not maybe the right language, but preempts this. The reading that we, that we gave at the start in Revelation He looks out at the church, the wonderful church, the bride of Christ, and he knows time in the future, or maybe at different times in the future, the love's going to blow hot and cold, that we're going to go away from him. And we read in the text, I don't know if you can remember what it said, but this breaks God's heart that we do this. In fact, he hates this about us. And yet, where does the text say that he is really powerfully, I think, to connect us with this story. He stands at the door and knocks. I don't know where you are with him in your relationship. I don't know when the last time it was that you gazed on him. I don't know maybe if you've dismissed the idea of a lovely blossoming relationship with him or you've dismissed it altogether. But he gives us a story, a love song, if you will, that we see illuminated in Jesus that's real and doesn't count any of us out and doesn't give up on any of us and gives us all hope. Would you hear the knocking? Would you look at him again? Would you turn to him maybe even now 